I am speaking to you at a moment of grave crisis. I'm Jeff Turner, and this is Recall. It's a series about history. Not the ancient past, but history that's still hot to the touch. In this first season, I explore a revolutionary political movement that brought a modern democracy to the brink. You can find Recall, How to Start a Revolution, on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Neil Kirksall. And I'm Chris Howden. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition. Tonight, Off the sidelines, the International Court of Justice says Israel must do whatever it can to prevent genocidal acts from occurring in Gaza. Our guest says that means it's time for Canada to send a clearer message about where it stands. Support the supporters. The president of Manitoba's Foster Parent Association calls on the province to raise daily allowances to keep pace with the cost of living or risk pricing would-be caregivers out. Blades of glory, NASA's plucky little research helicopter has flown its final mission on Mars. A Canadian scientist whose ingenuity helped create ingenuity says she's proud and sad because she got pretty attached to Ginny. Jolly not-so-green giant, Royal Caribbean is about to launch the world's largest cruise ship, touting its fuel as the cleanest and greenest possible. Experts like our guest are not on board with that boast. Egging each other on, a British wildlife park has a problem with swearing parrots, but the park's boss hopes integrating the offenders into the zoo's general parrot population will be a flocking big deal. And just what they were hopping for. The operators of a bouncy castle in Pakistan are feeling pretty puffed up today. Now that Guinness World Records agrees, they did not inflate their claim that it is the biggest bouncy castle in the world. As it happens, the Friday edition, radio that assumes it's a lot of fun if you can get past the bouncers. By 16 votes to one, the State of Israel shall take all measures within its power to prevent and punish the direct and public incitement to commit genocide in relation to members of the Palestinian group in the Gaza Strip. The International Court of Justice has issued a preliminary ruling on South Africa's genocide case against Israel. It stopped short, as you heard, of ordering an immediate ceasefire. But its decision is a partial victory for South African petitioners and a symbolic one for Israel's critics around the world. In addition to what you just heard from ICJ President Joan Donahue, the ruling demands that Israel take all measures to prevent the commission of acts that might contravene the Genocide Convention and that it enable the provision of humanitarian assistance to Gaza. Our guest says that means it's time for Canada to do more, too. Kedi Niviabandi is Amnesty Canada's Secretary General. We reached her in Washington, D.C. Kedi, what difference do you think this decision, worded in this way, could actually make? I think, first and foremost, uh, this is an important statement uh, globally. Uh, I think this is... Someone said um, that not only was Israel on trial in this case, but international law itself was in, was on trial. And I think this, first and foremost, uh, this decision, which recognizes that there could be acts of genocide being committed, uh, is 
first of all, really important for, for those who are suffering. Now, practically, what this means, Israel will now have to comply with the decision made by the court. Whether Israel actually does so is a different story altogether. The court has, however, asked Israel to report back within 30 days uh, with evidence of what it it has done to ensure that um, mm-hmm. these acts are no longer committed. So uh, there's a lot for us to observe in the next 30 days, but there's also a lot of hope, uh, mm-hmm. I think, in terms of what will what will happen. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, as you likely have heard, did respond quite quickly after after the ruling came down. Here's a bit of what he said in that response. Israel's commitment to international law is unwavering. Equally unwavering is our sacred commitment to continue to defend our country and defend our people. Like every country, Israel has an inherent right to defend itself. The vile attempt to deny Israel this fundamental right is blatant discrimination against the Jewish state, and it was justly rejected. The charge of genocide leveled against Israel is not only false, it's outrageous, and decent people everywhere should reject it. So given what you heard there, do you think that that what was said, the fact that the word ceasefire wasn't discussed, can this actually expedite an end to the fighting and bring hostages home? So it's unfortunate to hear um, that, you know, to hear a statement from um, Prime Minister Netanyahu, which is not surprising. However, the decision is going is is going to be is legally binding. The, that's important to note. And should Israel not abide by uh, by the decision, it will quickly become a pariah state. Um, and and I think this is what the state is not realizing. The decision also places an incredible amount of responsibility on all state parties. And so I think it's going to be increasingly difficult for um, other countries to support or to stand by as Israel continues what it has been doing over the past, since uh, since October 7th. On that issue of if, if Israel doesn't comply, we've seen in the past uh, a lack of, of compliance in some cases, uh, and that hasn't it hasn't changed the response from the international community uh, vis-a-vis Israel. Why do you think this time is different? I think what is different is here you have a ruling from a court, the International Court of Justice, uh, the court that all states turn to when similar incidents are happening, um, that has made it clear that the acts that are happening could be acts of genocide. Uh, now, it will, of course, continue to investigate further. But here you have a ruling that is quite significant. Um, and I think it's going to be extremely politically expensive for countries like um, Canada and others who decide to um, ignore this ruling or this decision by, by the court. Because what it does is that it tells other countries and other leaders around the world that uh, they too could potentially ignore the court's ruling in the future. And it creates an incredibly dangerous world for all of us. So I'm hoping that Canada is really going to revise its position mm-hmm. and stand by international law. You have spoken about hope 
a few times in this conversation already. You're hopeful. We spoke to a Palestinian doctor yesterday on the program, Osaid Alser. He's Palestinian, is based in Texas right now, has siblings in Gaza. And he told us families like his have, have very little faith that today's ruling will actually change anything on the ground. Of course, they, they would love to be hopeful that it would. I'll just play a little bit for you and our listeners of what he said on that front. From seeing from before, like similar resolutions and like court orders and stuff like that um, through the UN, through the the ICJ and all of that. I, I'm not sure if that would change much. To be honest, just to kind of be more realistic. We've seen it before. Really nothing has happened. So what do you say to people who share those doubts and, and others who are concerned this could lead to more violence? Mm. And uh, let me just say that I fully understand and fully you know, relate to this uh, hopelessness that he just shared. For those who are under the rubble and those who are under the bombs and whose lives have been dehumanized for so long, of course, uh, there's no hope in sight. But what I'd like to add is I I, I hope because there's no other alternative than to hope. Um, if we do not, and I believe South Africa was also hopeful when it went to the courts. If we stop hoping, then we resort to the worst, uh, the worst in us. And, and this is why I think I, but also us as an organization, uh, as a movement of campaigners, you know, uh, are determined to continue hoping, but hoping in action. One of my hopes is that people around the world, people in Canada, will rise and increasingly pressure their own government to stand on the right side of history uh, and uphold these rules, the international rules-based order that is so often uh, made reference mm-hmm. to. Uh, here is the time to actually, uh, you know, enact and, and practice the values that Canada has, you know, has professed for so long. In a statement this afternoon, Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie said, quote, Canada's support for the ICJ does not mean that we accept the premise of the case brought by South Africa, unquote. So specifically, what would you like to see the Canadian government say and do? First and foremost, we need Canada to support and express confidence in the court and in the court's decision. Second, we need Canada to continue to call publicly for an immediate ceasefire, which is the only way that the provisional measures issued by the court can be applied. And then thirdly, We need Canada in the meantime to hold all its exports, its military goods exports to Israel because of the risk, again, of genocide and irreparable harm, as stated by the court. Kathy, much more to watch for in the weeks ahead, as you mentioned. Thank you very much for your time tonight. Thank you so much. Kathy Niviabandi is the Secretary General for Amnesty International Canada's English-speaking section. She's in Washington, D.C. Ingenuity was the first of its kind, a solar-powered, remote-controlled little helicopter that helped NASA explore the surface of Mars. After landing on the Red Planet in 2021, it flew 71 successful missions, but mission number 72, just days ago, was its last. Ingenuity went down after sustaining serious damage to one of its rotor blades. Canadian scientist Farah Ali Bey is systems engineer with NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory and part of the team that created Ingenuity. We reached her in Sherbrooke, Quebec. 
Farah, were you ready to say goodbye to Ingenuity? I mean, are we ever ready to say goodbye? Um, I think, you know, we sort of um, were preparing ourselves for the eventuality of, of the mission ending, of course. Um, but, you know, like anything, it's always emotional when, when a mission ends. There's always a little bit of a grieving period that happens. We really do get attached to our robots. Yeah, well, what you just said there, but also what you posted on social media after the news broke, you wrote, quote, rest well, little one, and thanks for all the adventures, end quote. I mean, it's a bit tongue-in-cheek, but it's also quite personal and I hear that in your voice now like you're talking about an old friend yeah it's surprising right because you think well you know these are robots but the reality is that these missions they're people it's a collection of people what that robot represents it's adventurers it's people that dared to do something different that came together that worked insane hours <laughs> to do to, you know to do this thing you have to remember also that ingenuity was launched and those first few flights were in the depth of the pandemic so we were dealing with sort of this chaotic world and we had to sort of focus on trying to make history at the same time um so i think for us uh, this this little ingenuity or we like to call her Ginny, um she represents so much more than than what she's done right she's represents she represents human achievement um and the team that came together to make that happen if we go back in time to that first flight in 2021 it was the middle of the night when you and your colleagues first got images of Ingenuity's first flight on Mars. What was it like in the lab in Pasadena that night? Oh, my gosh, it was incredible. So I remember we knew that the images were supposed to come in, you know, around 1 or 2 a.m. I don't think that any of us had slept. Um, I came in early, and I'm never early to work, but I came in early. <laughs> That's good to know. That's not, uh, science. I'm not the late. most punctual person. <laughs> but I, you know, and I got there thinking I was going to be alone, and half the team was already there, kind of nervous, and hadn't slept. And um, and I remember, you know, we you've probably seen the videos where we're all in a room together waiting for that data to come down. And the first thing that we saw was the data from the altimeter. The altimeter is what gives you the height of the helicopter throughout its flight, right? So it just measures the height from the ground. And you saw this perfect plot that looked almost like a top hat, which showed like, oh, we went up, we stayed up, and then we came back down. And then we saw the the picture of the shadow of the, um, of the helicopter. And I, I remember looking at it and thinking, whoa, what did we just do? <laughs> it was such of this incredible moment, but it took, I want to say months or even years for it to really sink in, right? The, um, the impact of what we did. I think in the moment we were just incredulous of like, whoa, we just did that. And then in the months and years after that, as we were flying more, as people were recognizing what we were doing, as people got interested in the mission, I think that's when I really realized that like this, this was something special that we did. I mean, we call it our Wright Brothers moment, right? Mm -hmm. It's the moment that humanity took flight on another planet. That's quite extraordinary. What have you been able to observe and learn and collect on Mars because of ingenuity? Oh, gosh, so much. So, you know, first off, we didn't really even know if we could fly on Mars. I mean, the, the gravity on Mars is a lot lighter, We're a third of the gravity, which means that you're a lot, you know, a lot lighter if you went to Mars, which you would think would make it easier to fly. But Ingenuity only had, uh, sorry, Mars only has 1% of the atmosphere of Earth. Um, so we had to design control systems that would allow us to fly this thing remotely. We had to learn about weather on Mars, about air patterns about ground and air interaction and what that would look like even though we had an idea we knew from first principles what it should be um there's no better way to learn than through flight right and so every single flight 
of those 72 flights that Ingenuity did, we did something different. We learned something along the way. And that's the heritage that it leaves behind. It's, you know, as a technology demonstration mission, it fully accomplished its mission, right? The goal of a tech demo is to try and do something new and learn something about the planet, whether you fail or, or succeed. And that's exactly what we did. What do you know so far about what happened? I know you said every mission, you know, comes to an end and you feel that, that Ingenuity has been the success you wanted it to be. But why did it stop working now? Why is it over now? Yeah, so during the 72nd flight, um, you know, the team is still investigating exactly what happened, but we know that the helicopter suffered damage to its, um, to its rotor blades. Um, so, um, something must have happened during the landing. Of course, it's very hard to reconstruct what happened. And actually, the team is still working through that. Um, but we do have an image which you can find on, on the JPL website at Instagram, uh, where it shows that part of the blade basically broke off. Um, um, during the landing, the team actually lost contact with the helicopter in the last meter or so of that landing, mm. um, and then later was able to reestablish contact and, and get those images down. And because um, this little helicopter is so optimized, everything is perfectly balanced, right? These blades are carefully placed. Now that the, that blade is broken off, we simply just cannot fly anymore. So we're still able to talk to the helicopter, do some diagnostics, you know, try and learn as much as we can. Uh, but it's essentially taken its last flight um, because of that breakage. But Ingenuity will not fly again. Will it come back? <laughs> to you <laughs> no i mean home for ingenuity is mars she'll, she'll stay there and and uh, and take her retirement on mars um and uh you know so that's kind of often what happens with uh with our rovers and, and helicopter in this case um you might be familiar with the spirit and the opportunity mission opportunity that landed about 20 years ago on mars those missions ended um and also stayed on mars so that's uh that's their forever home i didn't know ingenuity was a she Glad to hear. Glad to hear. <laughs> I guess that's how I like to call her because the short name for ingenuity is Ginny, which <laughs> yes. So we'll take I, it. I, uh, maybe it's my creative license here. <laughs> I think you're allowed, Farah. Thank you for your time. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for uh, for giving me the opportunity to to share about our wonderful mission. Take care. Canadian scientist Farah Alibay is a systems engineer with NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. We reached her in Sherbrooke, Quebec. Parrots are known for one thing above all, it's right there in the name. And who doesn't love to be parroted? Being mimicked by a bird is just good, clean fun, except when it's shocking and vulgar, like the parrots at Lincolnshire Wildlife Park in England. The zoo first adopted five profane parrots in 2020, and the recent acquisition of three more has forced them to change tax when it comes to managing their foul-mouthed fowl. Steve Nichols is the chief executive at the park. We reached him in Skegness, England. Steve, where are all of these potty-mouthed parrots coming from? <laughs> uh, I think it's more a case of there's quite a lot out there, uh, but it's just that once they get together, once they start saying one or two words, people start laughing, the others start responding, and before you know it, you've got uh, a full team 
So I, originally, obviously, the human owners, uh, prior to them being donated to the sanctuary, they obviously got quite a lot of fun out of teaching them in the first place. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, that caused a little bit of embarrassment later on, especially for one or two people that actually dropped theirs off, uh, quite simply. When they arrived at the park, and they said that, uh, unfortunately, they do say quite a lot of choice words, and we do apologise. And she said, it's my husband uh, that's uh, taught them uh, uh-huh. most of the words. However, this particular species of parrots, when they learn from something or someone, they learn the identical pitch. So they don't only say the word, they say it in your voice. Mm-hmm. And while we were doing the paperwork, the parrot just happened to swear, and it swore in the lady's voice. Oh. And she went <laughs> she, she went quite red when she heard <laughs> it and, and realised that, She'd been caught. Busted. Uh, it wasn't her husband whatsoever. And ever since then, the parrot just swears in her voice. <laughs> so I remember it all the time now. <laughs> She'll be with you always. What was the word? It's <laughs> yes. uh, not really repeatable, but okay. uh, I can say that it begins with S and ends in S. And uh, it's not something that you can actually say uh, before nine o'clock at night time on any kind of uh, <laughs> TV or radio. Uh, but unfortunately, these guys say it all day and every day. We had the we had the buzzer ready to to bleep just in case, but I appreciate your discretion. So that's one of the birds' preferred swear word. What about some of the others? Just generally speaking, do they do they run the gamut? Yes, I mean basically we look at uh, swearing in this country really is split into like three categories, and that is <laughs> the very very minor ones, which sometimes even children say, and and you just like chastise them for saying the odd very light swearing one. And then the what we class as the common swear words, if you stub your toe when you're walking through the bedroom at night time, and that word that follows from there, that's classed as the normal adult swear words. But then I think it differs for, next... for a lot of people, though, that in that particular yeah. moment, but I, I hear where you're going. <laughs> but then we've got the next level, which is the, the very crude swear words, mm-hmm. words that you don't really find pleasant in most situations and it's usually the very strong adult words Mm -hmm. and uh, unfortunately the latest three that came uh, two of those especially one called Sheila she really uh, she really goes on to the 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 far end of the scale of what people can hear Sheila I mean these are the three new ones you're talking about but you started first inheriting Swearing parrots. This is a class of parrot now, swearing parrots, back in 2020. <laughs> so how were you dealing with them at that time? When they first arrived, very unusual to take five birds in five days. All the owners said the same thing. They all apologized. So when they arrived and we put them into quarantine, it meant that they, they were sharing the same airspace for the next 45 days. I was working in the office next door to their quarantine station and I could hear the language, and I genuinely thought it was some of our volunteers for the charity, <laughs> and I thought, I'd best go around and tell them to calm it down a bit. It's getting a little bit loud. Yeah. And when I walked in, I was actually quite shocked to find that there was no people there. There was just parrots in there. Oh, man. And, uh, and from there, when we actually brought them out, we heard a lot of laughing when it when was put into the aviaries. We did hear a lot of laughing, but then we heard a child say it. And our knee-jerk reaction was, oh, we're going to cause ourselves some trouble here. Mm-hmm. So we just moved them around the corner. We isolated from the main group so that the general public wouldn't hear them. So we did that. And then over a period of time, it did definitely quieten down a little. We put warnings out. We got some warnings on mm-hmm. the enclosures. And then 
we generally built a new enclosure and where the new section came, mm-hmm. these three were the most boarded we've ever had. We, we couldn't believe it and we said, right, we'll put those three with the other five <laughs> into the new enclosure with 92 others. Yeah. Uh, there is no hideout for them. They are literally on show to the public. And the Rolling idea was the right. <laughs> Were you worried at all that the polite parrots are going to be corrupted? Well, that's the other side of it. I mean, that's the uh, whether we're going to become an adult sanctuary or not. I have no idea whether we're <laughs> going to have to just have red barrier tape around certain enclosures. And we've actually, even this week, we've heard this, that people are arriving here to see them swear. Mm. And if they don't swear, then the people are swearing to try to encourage them. Oh my God. People so are messed way, up. Can we just <laughs> say that? Can, like, can we leave the parrots alone? Putting aside the fact that should they be teaching them to swear... Should this many people be adopting parrots? Not really. I mean, generally, to tell you the truth, I think the good thing that's happening now is the education on the internet and places like ourselves saying to people, there's really no excuse now to have a parrot in a cage in a house for 20 or 30 years. Uh, We know now that they're very intelligent and, and very gregarious creatures that like to be with each other. We have a large, we have two large colonies of African greys with 100 in one and 200 in the other. And that's really how you should see them. Ideally, they'd all be back in Africa. And some of the things that we're looking at is to try to repatriate them back to Africa, Mm. uh, some of them that can. But as a cage bird, I don't really think that they're a recommended pet. And people can come and see them and talk to them where you are. Yeah, they can come and, that's right, they can come and see them and swear. They can swear the the heart's content to our parrots and, and it'll make no difference. Instead of swearing at them at home and then just teaching them and, And that's all you end up hearing all the time. Steve, thanks for your time. That's no problem. It's been lovely talking to you. Likewise. Steve Nichols is the chief executive of the Lincolnshire Wildlife Park. We reached him in Skegness, England. Since the dawn of time, well, uh, since humankind showed up, which was long after the dawn of time we slept in, we have yearned to slip the surly bonds of earth and soar, and then come down again, and then go up again, Uh, to bounce, in other words. It's, It's why we invented the pogo stick, the trampoline, and why John Skurlock is a bouncy household name. In the late 50s, Mr. Skurlock was trying to develop inflatable covers for tennis courts, but noticed that his staff were less interested in playing tennis under those covers than they were in jumping around on top of them. And that was the big bang of bouncy castles. Sorry, that's a poor choice of words. Since then, bouncy castles have blown up. Let me rephrase that. Become wildly popular and been blown up with air. But humanity has never stopped yearning to bounce more expanding bouncy castles in height and size, and we have just reached a springy new milestone. A tourist attraction in Pakistan called Jumbo Jump has just been named the world's largest inflatable castle. It measures 1,421 square meters, or 15,295.51 square feet, adjusted for inflation, obviously. I know, I, I teared up too. Who would have thought that we would ever bounce to these heights, widths, and lengths in our lifetimes, to the point where a bouncy castle is ten times the size of your boring, rigid house. Maybe our collective dream will now one day come true, and entire towns, cities, and countries will be bouncy 
and we will look back at this as just the jumping-off point. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of The Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at The Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. Raising a child is an extremely rewarding experience. It can also be extremely expensive. That's not news to foster parents in Manitoba. For the past decade, they've been caring for kids on government funding of about 22 to $32 a day. And while inflation and cost of living have soared, the government has kept basic allowances and service fees largely stagnant. According to Manitoba Foster Parent Association, that is forcing some families to reconsider whether they can keep helping kids in need. Jamie Fow is the association's president. We reached her in Winnipeg. Jamie, what amount would be fair for you and other parents, in your opinion? Well, I just feel like since we have not had a raise in our basic maintenance rate since 2012, 12 years ago, that the rate should reflect Statistics Canada, which states that it costs around $17,000 per year to raise a child from 0 to 17. And so daily per child, that would be about $45, you've said, I believe, in the past? Correct. How would that help you? What kinds of costs are you covering? So the basic maintenance rate covers basic household things like the food, shelter, clothing that the child requires, any school registration fees or field trips that the school takes, all transportation costs. So if the child needs a bus pass, it's supposed to cover all social recreation. So if the child is engaged in sports or any other extracurriculars like band or music or tutoring, and then also just furniture, bedding, linen, everything. You and your husband, we should tell our listeners, welcomed your first foster child back in 2011. Why did you want to do that? Why do you and other parents that you've spoken to decide to take that on? For us, we were married in 2009, and shortly thereafter, we determined that in every possible way, I was infertile. And so it was a very quick pivot, and on our one-year wedding anniversary, we were filling out the paperwork to become licensed foster parents. So for us, you know, we really wanted that family to be parents, to help and nurture children. And as I was already working in group homes and halfway houses, I really was exposed to the need that Manitoba had for foster parents. We were young and energetic and perhaps naive (laughs) at the time. But um, yeah, we haven't looked back. It's been 13 years and And we have helped to raise eight children. And you have one child with you now, an eight-year-old. Yes. I asked that question to to hear your own personal experience, but also I think when people in this context hear about payments and payments should go up, on the cynical side of things, people wonder, well, people are doing this to help, right? They're not doing this to make money. You must get that. Absolutely. Yeah, Yeah, and and I totally hear that, and I, I get that it's easy to compare foster parents with being a birth parent, and the difference is that every single child who has been apprehended from their birth families has trauma 
and has an attachment disorder. And beyond that, there are tons of other cognitive complex challenges. Many of the children in care have diagnoses such as fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, autism spectrum disorder, attention deficit disorder, and and the list goes on. You know, this is a job. We're responding to the needs of these children in a way that in the future will promote positive outcomes. It's a wonderful, beautiful opportunity, but at the end of the day, it's a job. It requires one parent to stay at home to respond to the needs of these children, and it requires you to have a skill set, a toolbox, so to speak, to, to respond adequately and appropriately to these children. It's also a 24-7 day job. Three in the morning, somebody has a nightmare, you're on. <laughs> Eight in the morning, the school calls and says, you know what, your child is having a hard time, we're on. It, it's a, more than a full-time job. Yeah. Parents, all parents yeah. will know that, certainly. What are other parents telling you? What are they saying will happen if there isn't a shift in how much help you get? yeah. I have heard from many foster parents who are either A, like myself and my partner, downsizing, providing support for less children, or they're unfortunately having to close down their home. And this is a really emotional decision that foster parents have to make. I mean, I have seen the desperation in the foster family's faces when they're like, I don't think we can continue, you know, and and that is, it's really heartbreaking because these children who have been apprehended by the province to be cared for adequately are not being responded to because foster families are not being supported. Do you know how, how the, the payment structure in your province compares to others in the research you've done? Yes. We are in the basement. We have the absolute lowest basic maintenance fees. And, in fact, most provinces and territories in the last five years have increased their basic maintenance fees, and we have not. You wrote a letter to Manitoba's Families Minister, Mahani Fontaine. You're set to meet with her next week on Tuesday, in fact. What would success look like for you after having that conversation? Yeah, so in Manitoba, we have a very convoluted child welfare system. What we're looking for, or what I am hoping to see with Minister Fontaine in the meeting, is that she takes a leadership approach and and works with these four authorities, and all of them can come up with a plan to create, first of all, an emergency increase in the basic maintenance, which is in line with the cost of living in Canada, and also a review of a training and support program in Manitoba. We are the only jurisdiction in Canada that does not require a training program. So we need a consistent, cohesive program that can help foster parents be successful, right? Because if foster parents are successful, then the children that they're caring for are going to thrive. And hopefully get to a point where where families can stay together and the the number of children needing care decreases. Well, and in Manitoba, we have 10,000 children in care. 90% of them are Indigenous. And a lot of foster families do not get that critical cultural training. So we are not set up to have an elder or knowledge keeper to reach out to. We are not set up to understand what a Sundance is or where to go to have a sweat lodge ceremony. 
And if we don't have that guidance, it's very easy to avoid that. And that is culturally harming these children, right? They need to have access and exposure to their culture. Jamie, thank you for your time. Thank you so much. Jamie Fow is the president of the Manitoba Foster Parent Association and a foster parent herself. We reached her in Winnipeg. It's been more than 35 years, and today police on Prince Edward Island announced that they had finally made an arrest in the murder of Byron Carr. Mr. Carr was 36 years old when he was strangled to death in his Charlottetown home. Police have charged Todd Joseph Gallant with his murder. Byron was a loving son, brother, and a friend of many. He was a respected teacher. His tragic death shook our city and province to its core. A note left at the crime scene read, I will kill again. Unsolved for over 35 years, Barnes' murder has caused trauma to generations of Islanders. Nobody more impacted than his family and Barnes' friends in the gay community. The scope of this investigation has been extensive. We've leveraged advanced DNA testing and investigative genetic genealogy to lead us to the arrest of Todd Joseph Gland. Charlottetown Police Chief Brad McConnell speaking to reporters earlier today. Byron Carr's brother, John Carr, also talked about the arrest today. Here's some of what he had to say. I would like to thank friends and family for showing up uh, in support of us. Uh, It's been a long 35 years. said I wasn't going to do this. (laughs) Special thank you to the Charlottetown Police Force, Chief Brad and his team, Pat amongst them, and Darren, I know, see him at the back there, and and lots of others who uh, did a lot of work, especially in the last few years, on um, piecing this this together. Also, uh, thank you to the members of the public who have assisted police and our family over the years. It's amazing how many calls we got, people trying to help. It was in goodness and kindness that they were doing it. So we appreciate that. We're sad that the case went on for 35 years. Both our parents, uh, mom and dad, have passed away and weren't here to uh, take part in this process today. We know they're with us in spirit, for sure. John Carr is the brother of the late Byron Carr. Yesterday, police arrested a man in connection to Byron's murder more than 35 years later. It's called the Icon of the Seas, and it is being billed as the biggest, baddest ship on the planet by Royal Caribbean. It's undeniably big, and critics also say that it is undeniably bad. 
It is longer than three soccer fields and has 20 decks filled with restaurants, casinos, and a 55-foot waterfall. It is the largest cruise ship ever. And the company is also claiming it will be the cleanest because the Icon uses liquefied natural gas. But according to environmental watchdogs, that isn't clean at all. Brian Comer is the director of the Marine Program at the International Council on Clean Transportation. We reached him in Washington. Brian, we've listed the the selling points, at least for for travelers who, who love cruises. What do you see when you look at this ship? The problem with the Icon of the Seas is the fuel it uses and the engines that it uses. This ship is designed to emit more greenhouse gas emissions than older ships. Would you board it? I would board it if I were able to measure the methane emissions that were coming out of the stacks, but otherwise I think I would stay away. Not your vacation choice, sounds like. Unless, Not my vacation unless choice. Unless that's what you yes. like to do on vacation because you love uh, the environment no. so much. No. In all seriousness, though, uh, the, when we talk about w- what the creators of this cruise and this ship have said, you know, they say they have lots of uh, advanced technology to make this cruise more environmentally friendly. We'll start with the LNG aspect of things, which we mentioned in the introduction and you hinted at there. They say it's, quote, the cleanest burning marine fuel, end quote. Your response? Using LNG is a really great way to comply with existing international regulations that control the amount of sulfur in marine fuels, the amount of nitrogen oxide air pollutants that ships emit, and also the amount of carbon dioxide that ships emit. But there's a big blind spot in the existing international regulations, and that's that they only cover carbon dioxide as a greenhouse gas, and they don't yet cover methane. And when you consider methane, then using LNG ends up emitting more total greenhouse gas emissions than the fuels that it's replacing. Even if it's if it's imperfect, as you've described, is it a better option for right now? There are better options that are already available. Certainly, you don't want to be using fossil fuels as a decarbonization strategy. And uh, we have methanol as an alternative. It's still a fossil fuel. It emits just as much life cycle greenhouse gas emissions as conventional oil-based fuels, but it has the same advantages of LNG on the air pollution side. And the benefit of using something like methanol is that when you actually do start using sustainable carbon sources and renewable hydrogen to make the fuel, Mm -hmm. you can actually get to net zero greenhouse gas emissions. The company is also touting some other additions uh, that they say makes makes this ship uh, more environmentally friendly. Advanced water treatment systems on board, as well as something called MapTech microwave assisted pyrolysis, which to, you know makes pellets of the waste on board, different kinds of waste on board, and then uses that for energy as well. As I understand it, what do you make of those additions? Let's give credit where credit is due. So the first thing I would give them credit for is having shore power availability. And so their home port is Miami. Miami is soon going to be able to provide shore power for ships so that way they can plug into the electricity grid instead of running their engines. And that's really important because when these um, marine engines idle and they're using LNG, they continue to emit large amounts of methane to the atmosphere, worsening the climate problem. And also releasing methane near shore can have air pollution impacts as it uh, reacts with other chemicals in the air. So that's a good thing. 
The other good thing is their wastewater treatment plant. Uh, that's one of the most advanced, if not the most advanced, that's available right now. Does the carpool uh, comparison work here, that a ship this size, more passengers, maybe fewer cruises overall? You know, the issue is that even the most efficient cruise ship still results in about twice as much carbon dioxide emissions per passenger per kilometer as if you flew and stayed in a hotel for a five-day vacation. This is according to some analysis Mm -hmm. I did a couple years ago. And so it would still be better per person per mile to get on an airplane, which we all know is not exactly the most climate-friendly way Mm. to vacation. So based on what you were saying earlier, it sounds like there are ways in your mind to, to make this industry more sustainable. Am I hearing you correctly there, or do you think that this is, this is never going to get to where you need it to be? It's not a question about the technology. Mm-hmm. It's a question about the economics and the regulations. The cruise industry really can't be trusted to do the right thing by itself because these are often um, you know, public companies that are trying to maximize their profit. So what I would like to see is mandatory regulations at the international level and then also in the United States that would require ships to become cleaner over time. We have something similar in the European Union. The um, fuel EU maritime regulation goes into effect starting in 2025, and that will gradually reduce the maximum allowable life cycle emissions um, for marine fuels. So that way, the greenhouse gas intensity of the fuels falls over time in a predictable way. We don't have anything like it in the United States right now, and we don't have anything like it yet at the global scale. You know, people go on trips and, and, and cruises to see the open waters, to see beautiful places uh, around the world. What do you want people who, who might want to sign up for this cruise or others, what do you want them to know about the potential impact on those beautiful places around the world if the kinds of regulations you're recommending are not brought in? Yeah, we see ships getting larger. The Just the, the impacts on things like coral reef systems, uh, when there's turbulence in the water and kicking up sediment and covering them. Uh, not all of the ships have these advanced wastewater treatment plants. It's perfectly legal to dump sewage 12 nautical miles offshore, mm-hmm. And so as demand for cruising increases, then we can only expect that the environmental damages are going to increase as well without regulation. Brian, thank you for your time. Thank you very much, Neil. Brian Comer is with the International Council on Clean Transportation. We reached him in Washington. Even if you're not a dog, I think you can agree that there are times when woof or arf or even grr just don't cut it because you have more to say, more opinions to share. Things like mad, ouch, stranger, paw, which happens to be what a poodle mix named Bunny told her owner one day using one of the dozens of word-making buttons that she has at her disposal on her language board. And sure enough, Bunny did actually have a foreign object, that was the ouch stranger, stuck in her paw, which her owner was able to remove. I I don't know if Bunny said thank you, but the point is she could have. Alexis Devine posts about Bunny's amazing communication skills on Instagram, sharing moments like this one. Big. 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 Big.
Love you. Love you. Sleep. Sleep. Go on. Go on. Go on. Sleep. Shouldn't you be love you? And what, sweetie? Hmm? Feel. Want. Sleep. You feel. Work. You feel sleepy? In case you didn't catch that, Bunny said, Big feel, love you, but also want sleep. Yeah, me too, Bunny. Ms. Devine recently released a book about her adventures with Bunny titled, I Am Bunny. She told CBC Radio's On the Coast what makes her certain that Bunny is choosing her words carefully. Well, really, it's the context that gives her button presses meaning, right? Like, she could, if I were, you know, sitting downstairs doing some work, she could press the bird button. And if there's no bird, then that seems quite random. But if she goes to the window, she looks up at a seagull that's sitting on a post and then comes back to the board, looks at me, presses bird, then looks at the bird again. You know, that gives that gives it some clarity. Do you know what I mean? Or if, uh, you know, my partner comes in the door and she says, hi, dad. It's hard to imagine that those are random presses out of a board of over 100 buttons. Um, you know, and she's a very anxious and nervous dog and giving her the buttons has really given her the agency to be able to have a little bit more control over her environment. For example, if uh, she sees a bird that she doesn't like, she can now label it and instead of reacting, she can come to me for, you know, some scritches and I can bring her, talk her down off the ledge as it were. Mm. So she can actually... Uh, communicate to you that she is that she is feeling these emotions. It's not just these basic Absolutely. commands or desires. And I think a lot of the pushback that I get is from people who aren't quite ready to consider that dogs possess this capability. Because if they do, we're going to have to reframe how we think about living with these animals. And they are captive animals. So I feel like we owe them as much agency and control as we can give them because their their lives are very structured and very limited, generally. I've got to ask, though, what are some of Bunny's favorite topics that she does like to bring up with you? Well, she very much enjoys talking about poop. <laughs> <laughs> There was a period of time when she was about two years old where she just was constantly calling my partner out for going to the bathroom. Uh, she would call out guests. She would she would call me out. At one point, she asked where I go poop as if she couldn't comprehend why I would go inside when she goes outside. You've got this whole uh, lawn out there. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, right now, she she likes to talk a lot about her feelings, which um, makes sense to me because, you know, we, we struggle with them sometimes. Alexis Devine, owner of Bunny the Poodle Mix, speaking with On the Coast guest host Amy Bell. You've been listening to the As It Happens podcast. Our show can be heard Monday to Friday on CBC Radio 1, following the world at 6. You can also listen to the show online at cbc.ca slash AIH or on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Neil Kirksell. And I'm Chris Howden.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.